things we're dealing with are threats to humanity unlike anything the world has ever seen before. We can bequeath our children a greener planet and a more prosperous future. That's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. East tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista Series 5, Just Stop the Tories. I'm Ian Collins and this is the UK's number one environment-based podcast. If it's green, it's in. And I have to say, we're, we're kind of lucky, Dale, frankly, that you're even here. You should be sleeping off, not a, a hangover through the usual channels of partying and the like, but a political hangover. Can we say that much? Yeah, I think we can say that. And actually, this is like a recovery day today. I'm all kinds of like uh, discombobulated at times uh, because of uh, catching up on a lack of sleep and a lack of food and, and just an abundance of talking, which has kind of worn me out a bit. You know, like uh, I got to the conference on Saturday, which is like in plenty of time, but uh, Sunday night I stayed up till 5 a.m., Right. There's a, there are people in that party that like to party is all I want to say. Yeah. But I had a radio, a live radio interview at seven the next morning. So I got an hour's oh, sleep, no. one, one hour sleep. I got up and did the radio, went back to bed for two hours, then got up and did live TV. And then, well, worked through the night, did Peston late that night. And had a, had a, a, I heard your voice on the radio that morning. I thought it was an interview with Orson Welles that they were doing. <laughs> it was a well, deep voice. Wow. Or something. Uh, my name is Dale Vince. Good morning. <laughs> it was brilliant. I didn't know who that was actually. That. <laughs> but that was that was like that was my few day. I want to say week, but it was days at the conference. It was just uh, yeah. really long. Lots of fun. Lots of talking. Not a lot of food and not a lot of sleep. And I'm just catching up now. Was it productive? Was it positive? Did it feel like things are happening? Yeah, it did. I mean, I, I caught all the big speeches. Um, you know, did a lot of interviews and stuff. Got the chance to put across the position. I mean, there's a lot of interest. Obviously, we pivoted away from funding just stop boil to essentially funding just stop the tories only the friday before the conference made that big announcement so there's a lot of interest yeah. in that and and you know spent a lot of time explaining that uh, to various forms of media yeah i mean had some had some really useful chats met an awful lot of people that love what we're doing ecotricity what i'm doing uh, you know the announcements that we've been making it was just an awful lot of support from people at the conference which is also a great thing to do did a book signing as well yeah yeah um man i just had a hoot and i'm exhausted now Fantastic. Who'd have thought you'd be knackered from hanging out with some socialists? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but, but what's interesting about Labour's position, because you obviously trust them uh, in terms of their direction. I was about to say more than you trust them, Corey. You don't trust them. <laughs> you know, you had a, there was a slight wobble about 10 years ago when you thought, well, maybe they go. And that didn't last for very long, and, and, and they weren't serious and stuff. But there, of course, there is a school of thought, even with Labour, within Labour, that Starmer won't go far enough either. He'll do some things, but not enough. What's your, and you're familiar with that argument. Yes. What's your take on that? Yeah, so I answered this question a few times in interviews and stuff. And uh, it was actually on that Tuesday morning with one hour sleep that I came up with a line that I think sums it up, actually. But they were saying to me, oh, he won't go far enough and stuff like that. And I said, Labour don't have to be radical to be radically better than the Tories. And that's the big thing for me. You know, they're awful. They've created so many crises in our country and turned their back on the green economy. Labour haven't got to be radical here. They've just got to be like sensible. 
sensible and good. And here's the thing that punctuates or, or kind of supports that feeling. I watched Rachel Reeves' speech, and it was a good speech. And the things that she got a, a standing ovations for, I realized afterwards, were just common sense, right? She said she's going to close tax loopholes. She's going to claim back the $7 billion in fraudulent COVID loans that this government are not trying to get back. I mean, in, in combo, just those things, two things were worth 10 billion pounds to us as a nation. And I left there thinking, do you know what? She's made, she's made common sense exciting again. And that shows you just how low, how bad things have got under 13 years of Tory government. Yeah, because some people would say if Rachel Reeves can make anything exciting, then that's a step in the right direction for a start. <laughs> but then she is a serious economist. She I mean, she's, she's not a stand-up comedian. No, that's right. She's a serious player. And I don't think, uh, I don't know if she told any jokes, actually, but some of the people there, they tell some great jokes. Angie Rayner, uh, she probably had the best jokes, maybe as a close neck and neck with Ed Miliband. He, his speech was storming. He was like a liberated man. He was just having fun. It was, it was great to watch, actually. Let's look at the other side then and what's happening with, I nearly forgot his name then the prime minister rishi suna that's how bad it is dale i, I literally was scrambling to remember yeah. the prime minister's name and and you have to sort of remind yourself that he is still there he has to remind himself you know i saw that like email he sent out fundraiser email that named me and he signed it off like rishi Sunak, prime minister of the uk in case anybody didn't know <laughs> Indeed, yes well he might have to keep reminding people because it won't go on for much longer um but let's row back a little bit to a couple of weeks ago, the U-turn on some of the net zero issues. And uh, your contention is quite simple on this, and it's shared with others like the Climate Change Committee and the like, that these U-turns, it's all very well saying we're not getting rid of net zero, but it does make the whole thing a shed load harder, right? Yeah, I think there was a report out today. Climate Change Committee have said that it is making it harder for us to reach net zero. And actually, it's also affecting confidence in our country for investment. I mean, these are two of the things that a lot of people said, uh, including me. But actually, I had a reflection today on this uh, on this U-turn. And, and in my book, Manifesto, I, I talk about the concept of green populism, uh, which is about really communicating about the same thing in a different way, taking some style cues, if you like, from people like Farage, Johnson and Trump, but without, without lying, just, just communicating in a different way. And the big example in my book is energy independence. Don't argue for it on the basis of the climate crisis and how it's good for that and saving ice and polar bears and that kind of stuff. Argue mm. about it or argue for it rather on the basis of jobs and economy and independence from global fossil markets and lower energy bills, all of the things that actually people care about more. So that's a great yeah. example. I was about to just throw into that. And I, I may have mentioned this on the last episode, but Matthew Said, the Times journalist who was on with me a few weeks ago, just made a really good point. He said, look, whatever you think about environmental issues and climate, oil is going to run out. So (laughs) on that basis alone, it won't exist. So you're you're going to have to find, and people say, well, there's another 200 years worth. It's like, well, that's that's not really the point. That doesn't counter that argument, which is huge. So if you don't like some of the other arguments around it, just work on the very, any other company, any other industry, if you thought your core product was going to run out, you would find another way of doing it. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, this is why I refer to renewable energy lately as forever fuels. And actually, you know, we made that point about this whole drilling in the North Sea thing. But the new thought I had today was actually kind of to, to take this idea of green populism and apply it in a different way. So not for the things that we argue for, but for the things that I've been arguing against. And the great example is two weeks ago, Rishi Sunak announced 
the the pushing back of the deadline for the ending of the sale of petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035. And he announced it on the basis that it was going to save people money in this cost of living crisis without taking responsibility for that course. And when I argued against it, and, and a lot of other people in the environment did, it was really kind of a, a rather dry and technical argument. Like I, for example, said the Climate Change Committee have said that this five-year delay could cost 10 billion in extra fuel costs for motorists. So it's not saving anybody any money, right? A bit dry and technical, I think. Today, I had this realization. What I should have said is, Rishi Sunak is so out of touch, right? He thinks that people that are struggling with a cost of living crisis are worried about buying a new car in f***ing seven years' time. That's right. <laughs> right? That's what he thinks. Where, where are we going to get the Maserati from, darling? He's, he's like, don't worry, I'm going to help you out of this cost of living crisis, or not right now, but in seven years' time, when you come to yeah. buy your next new car, it won't have to be electric. Thanks, Rishi. And here's another headline that should make everybody disturbed. Climate change could make beer taste worse. What the hell's going on? <laughs> it could make it taste better, though, couldn't it? If you think about it, you could think, God, I need a beer. Everything's so f***ed up. <laughs> that's, that's very true. What's happening? I mean, this is a study that's looking at about the, the quality and the taste of beer. Yeah. I mean, it's about the climate affecting crops, you know, and the nature of crops and the quality of things like hops and that kind of stuff. But honestly, for me, it's not an important story. I don't want to, like, um, I don't want to sound harsh. but No, no, but I guess the point is that, it's another maybe more tangible way of people understanding that the effects <laughs> and the ripple effect. I like it. I like is, it. I'm with you already. Massive. I'm with yeah, you already. Yeah. This is another form of green populism. We're going to tell beer fans, your beer's going to taste shite as well, by the yeah, way, right? Don't think you'll be immune to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You won't be able to do anything and your beer will be shit. So I think we've got that nicely covered. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a name competition for the new vessel for Captain Paul Watson Foundation. What's going on here? Oh, yeah. And, and that's actually a bit of a complicated story. I'm going to try and simplify it. Paul Watson founded Sea Shepherd donkeys yonks ago, and it grew from one boat and a small crew when I first met them about 10, 12 years ago to a global organization, I think off the back of some sky coverage, you know, like a couple of series made about their heroic work in the South Atlantic, trying to prevent uh, whaling by the Japanese. That's the background. As it grew into a global organization, he he put in place a board of directors. And at some point recently, a few months ago, they decided they didn't want him in the group anymore. He was too radical, so they kicked him out. Right. <laughs> Which is it's a bit tragic, right? Um, and I'm laughing, but it's a bit tragic. They, they basically said this direct action that uh, Sea Shepherd become renowned for is too confrontational and we'd rather work with governments and, and fishermen and people like that and do science, right? There's plenty of people doing science, as Paul said. So who's doing the direct action? So he set up the new organization, the one, you, the one you named, Captain Paul Watson Foundation, which I don't think is a great name. It's a bit of a mouthful. I prefer Sea Shepherd. And I, I did say at the time, you guys, you should be the real Sea Shepherd because they're being told they can't use the name, they can't use the logos. Uh, right. that, that oil is owned by the original corporation. And I'm thinking, well, look, don't give in easily. Be, be the yeah. real Sea But anyway, long story short, they, they've set up this organization in, in Britain, uh, kind of reversed into Sea Shepherd UK, which retained its independence. Um, I think I'm on the board of that. And I just bought them a boat. It's, it's not nice. a huge boat. It's an Australian Coast Guard vessel. It's fast. It's small. We've got a fantastic paint job for it, uh, riffing on some of Forest Green's shirt designs. Uh, it's in low stuff at the moment, waiting to be painted up in those colors. And we just said online, look, guys, we need a name, right? So the one I came up with late one night, kind of for a joke, was, was, uh, was like this. Moby, open brackets, is not the closed brackets, dick. Love it. Yeah. 
that Good. you see back to our blue pizza competitions, that would be the winner. <laughs> and I'm thinking, part of the reason is I'm thinking like the media that cover what these guys do in their campaigns always use the boat name. So, you know, it'd be like Captain Paul Watson Foundation drove today the, maybe it's not the dick. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> so I don't think it's going to work, but we've, we've, uh, we've opened it up to the public and uh, we'll see what we end up with. Good work. Question from Martin, back to Labour, who says, uh, what can we do to help Labour overturn their decision to go ahead with Rosebank if they win the next election? Surely this must be a massive own goal. Um, what, what is, uh, we, we've been over this before. What is your take on this, Dale? Yeah, so, I mean, basically what they've said is they won't tear up contracts. So if the Tories have given uh, the go-ahead, which they have, and those guys are starting work, which they probably will be, Labour aren't going to come along after the event and tear up contracts. And there's Quite sensible, really, because there'll be big compensation costs to pay if that happens. And we saw what happened last week when Sunak cancelled HS2. We are going to pay hundreds of millions in compensation, and it's knocked the confidence of the investor community in the British government, you know, who flip-flopping around on all kinds of stuff right now. Keir Starmer is basically saying he's going to be a bit more grown-up in government, right, and a bit more business-like, and I get that. Now, Rosebank is just the biggest of those that will get a new license, but the Tories are threatening hundreds more. I doubt they can bring them forward fast enough to avoid being binned because Labour have said no new oil. But if this one's up and running, then it won't count as new, will it? I was just going to bring in a question that kind of ties in with both the the, the oil issue specifically and Labour and, and campaigning from Sarah, who says, can't we support both Just Stop Oil and focus on getting the Tories out? Yes. And, you know, I haven't turned my back on my friends in Just Stop Oil. I, I say every chance I get, you know, they're brave people, they're selfless, they put themselves in harm's way for this vital issue. But more protest right now, more disruption right now is going to feed the Tory culture war narrative. This new thing they've come up with whereby they're demonizing green and uh, eco-minded people, the green economy, that kind of stuff. This is the tactic for the election. It's very clear. And they use disruption and protest now to beat Labour with because I funded Labour and I funded Just Stop Oil and it's become yeah. a weapon of the Tories. And so we've got to deny them that weapon uh, in, in all its forms, I think. And it's also because they've made clear that no amount of protest will stop them from drilling in the North Sea. We could protest for another 20 years against this conservative government. And the only thing that will change is the laws against protesting and the sentences given to protesters. It doesn't make sense to continue to do that, knowing that and knowing there's an election coming. And our great hope to just stop oil permanently and properly is to vote Labour. Here's a stat that would put a kink in your perm. Uh, this one here, the climate, <laughs> crisis, today, as happens. <laughs> the climate crisis is costing £13 million an hour in extreme weather. Did you see this? I didn't. The study is the first to calculate a global figure for increased costs directly attributed to the human-caused climate heating. And they're looking at storms and heat waves and droughts and all the rest of it. And when they work it all out and crunch the numbers, it's thirteen million pounds an hour. Mm, yeah, it's all kinds of madness, isn't it? We're awash with stats. Like my favourite is is really Rosebank. You know that we're going to put four billion of public money into that. We're going to give it to a Norwegian company who claim they're investing in Rosebank. They're not. We are. And then any profits from that will go to Norwegian people. There won't be anything for Britain. It's a loss-making project for us. Over its lifetime, we will lose £750 million. We're going to create 450 jobs, whoop, whoop, for a £4 billion investment. And the oil won't even land here. It goes straight into international markets. It's a nonsense decision. I mean, it's, that's, sorry, that's just an example of two things, right? Numbers, climate change numbers, and something that really irritates me. 
Indeed. Uh, here's one. Countries across Europe are using repressive measures to silence activists. I mean, this is extraordinary, isn't it? Because you tend to think, or we used to think, that, you know, silencing activists sort of happened in North Korea and China. And although there's always been a bit of, you know, argy-bargy with the police and authorities when it comes to how you protest, there does seem to be a deliberate policy now. France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, the Netherlands, the UK, mass arrests, passing draconian laws and the like, because somebody has the audacity to say, I'd quite like to keep the planet alive. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, protest is a democratic right and it can create change. Our government are clamping down on it. We do point the finger at other regimes we consider repressive, but hey, it's pretty repressive here. I've been saying in the last week or so, this thing, because um, it popped into the news, Two Just Our Boil activists have been jailed for seven years, right, for stopping traffic in the uh, Dufford Tunnel. Yeah, seven years, right, which is a hellish sentence for stopping a bit of traffic. Just last week, the guy that broke into Buckingham Palace with a crossbow, with the intention to kill the Queen, that was obviously before she died, he got nine years. It's extraordinary. So how do we how do we arrive at that calculation where a bit yeah. of traffic is worth, you know, seven-ninths of trying to kill the Queen? And a fella quite recently shot his next door neighbour over an argument about mowing the lawn, and he only got two years. What the hell is going on? <laughs> um, I'm beside myself. I can't effing blind enough about that. That's incredible. I mean, two years for a flymo debacle. I mean, yeah. come on. Yes, uh, it's all kinds of wrong. It's just all kinds of wrong. We we've become repressive under this Tory government, and uh, you know the I mean the laws they're passing. The the, the people were arrested at the um, what's his name King Charles's coronation, right? They they were arrested for having bungee straps because the cops argued that that was a device that you could lock on with. I was like, excuse me, it's a fucking bungee strap. You can undo it and do it at your will. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> It's actually quite. This is all sitcom territory in any other world, isn't it? This wouldn't be like news. This would just be a a plot of a kind of wonky sitcom. The Tories have made Britain a shitcom. Shitcom. There you go. Freddie says, "How's the eco park going? When do you hope the new album?" New album, the new, album. A new stadium <laughs> will be built by, unless you've got an album coming out wow. as well. That's what happens. I've been thinking about making music. I kind of like the thought. That's good. I just got to find a bit of time and then, um, you know, learn a bit about music, but then I'll give it a go. <laughs> yeah. Do you play anything? Well, I, I can play the guitar. I did once make a living from it, but that's not as glamorous as it sounds. I was yeah. uh, busking in Spain. Um, and other people tuned it for me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Passes nice. by usually to the question. Well, it's going slowly, but then it's been going slowly for the last 12 years. We do have permission outline. It should be confirmed as full in a couple of weeks' time. We are in the local plan with a bigger proposal for the business park part of Eco Park, 4,000 jobs, green economy technology, that kind of stuff. And that's been held up by the planning inspectorate. They don't like stroud's approach to housing in the local plan and that's holding everything up that's recent news but i'm full of hope positivity confidence we will build a stadium first and the business park will follow sobering headline 43 million children have been forced to leave their homes due to the climate crisis now this is a unicef report calling on governments to protect kids from the impacts of climate change you kind of wonder how bad a headline has to get for people to go well maybe we need to probably put our foot on the gas 
uh, a little on this. Look, I was arguing this a few months ago because I spent most of the summer defending Just Stop Oil. And, you know, the big argument in the media was, oh, they're disrupting people going about their daily lives and all that kind of stuff. My argument was that the disruption caused by the climate crisis is is actually life and death. You know, I think uh, I saw a number from the um, United Nations, 30 million people made homeless every year, 4 million people actually killed already by the climate crisis, you know, which affects uh, obviously more than 4 million people. It affects their families as well. It's actual life and death. And we're complaining about, I think it was a few minutes of tennis disruption. And actually the rain caused more delay at Wimbledon than Just Up Oil did, which is also worth bearing in mind. But yeah, I mean, it's real. The numbers are big. But they're not here right now, are they? They're not as immediate as trying to pay your food bill, your your housing bill, and that kind of stuff. And so the you know the vast majority of people in the country are saying, yes, we care about the climate crisis, but actually we've got more immediate problems. And this is where the whole green economy thing comes in, because that's the answer to the cost of living crisis and the climate crisis. It's how we solve both. Here's a question to finish on: Have you? Uh, it's from Rob. Have you considered building one of your green gas plants in Cornwall? They're trying to get to net zero by 2030 and putting green gas into their gas network would surely be a great way to achieve and prove that it works. Yeah, it would. I'm sure answered no. I haven't thought of Cornwall. We are working on our second project. And the first project, I'm saying it quietly, is putting gas into the grid. It started just before the Labour conference and it's still doing it. So that's a that's a win. <laughs> but actually, I, I don't really doubt that it will. Um, and we're, we're now working on plans for a big public launch of, of this, you know, first project dedicated to using grass to make gas and injecting it in the grid. I think it's the biggest opportunity of the green economy that we have. It's unseen at the moment. We're all looking at green electricity and hydrogen and stuff like that. This is a huge economic opportunity. We crunch the numbers, beginning conversations with the NFU to win farmers on board because it's a great transition for them away from animal agriculture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Short answer, no. Long answer, why not, right? Cornwall should have one. I think that we need a national program for green gas, to grow grass, to make green gas, and um, there's huge benefits in it. Fantastic. Dale, we'll let you rest now from your political party <laughs> hangover. I'll set the alarm for next Thursday. Nice one. We'll speak then. Have a good week. Cheers, in. Don't forget, of course, you can follow this podcast from your podcast provider. Make sure you do that. That way you get each new episode automatically. And follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince, facebook.com slash dalevince. Zero carbon. East off.